Hi, you're listening to Shabbat Replay on Contact High, a podcast from Mishkan, Chicago. We're releasing our sermons so that no matter where you were Friday, you can enjoy a piece of Shabbat today. Okay, so every Jewish holiday throughout the year has some historical memory attached to it that we reflect and refract through the lens of whatever's happening in our lives and in the world in the present day. But I find that when we get to the summer, to these summer months that we've been talking about, that's when the calendar really comes alive. And so when we get to this this whole story, this saga, this historical event of the breaching of the walls of Jerusalem, commemorated by the 17th of Tammuz. Again, we just began the month of Tammuz, so it's coming in 15 days. And then three weeks later, Tisha B'Av, commemorating the destruction of Jerusalem, first by the Romans, or first by the Babylonians and then the Romans. This is when Jewish historical memory, for those of us who are living the calendar, feels most palpable to me. This is the period of time on the calendar that is quite awkward for those of us observing Judaism in a multicultural society. You feel the duality of what Rabbi Mordechai Kaplan called living in two civilizations as a Jewish person. Um, The Jewish calendrical cycle as one civilization, you know, the holidays and the texts and the rituals and the togetherness of Jewish peoplehood and the ways in which that actually sometimes conflicts and is in tension with the society, wherever you live on planet Earth, wherever you live or have lived throughout time. Um, These are often at odds, these civilizations. And so the historicity of the Jewish calendar feels very palpable during these summer months. Um, I'll give you an example of how this plays out. Um, A few years back, the Indigo Girls came to play at the Vic. And for those of you who know me, first of all, I used to live around the corner from the Vic. Second of all, the Indigo Girls basically trained me. They don't know that they trained me, but I'm telling you, they, they are my most formative teachers in guitar and in harmony and in vocal, vocal music. Um, I couldn't go because it was on the 7th of Av. It was in like the nine days leading up to Tisha B'Av. And for me, it just felt too dissonant with the Jewish calendar being in such a dark place to be in a place that was filled with so much love and light and joy. Another example, it's hard to schedule a rabbi to do your wedding in the summer. It is made that much more difficult by the fact that many rabbis won't do weddings. Jews, you know, very traditionally don't get married during the three weeks between the 17th of Tammuz and the 9th of Av. It's called the three weeks. And people don't listen to live music. Some people don't eat meat. Many people don't get married. It's considered a dark, sad, inauspicious time to do happy things like get married. Um, You know, and so while everybody else is like out partying in July and August this year, it's all happening a little bit earlier. You know, you have to say, no, thank you. I'm sorry. I can't. I'm remembering the ancient destruction of Jerusalem and the exile and displacement of my people 2000 years ago. That said, unlike Passover, these summer holidays, the 17th of the month of the of the, of the month of Tammuz and Tisha B'Av, these are historical events. And since the setting of the calendar on these days and the declaring, these days are both fast days, by the way, 17th of Tammuz is just a fast day during the day. 
sort of like Ramadan is observed. And um, Tisha B'Av is a 24-hour fast day, just like Yom Kippur. Whereas Yom Kippur is considered like a light fast day, Tisha B'Av is considered a dark fast day. Yom Kippur is filled with potential and forgiveness and transformation. And Tisha B'Av is just sitting with suffering and sadness and loss and grief. And so this holiday also became like a magnet for every other historical trauma that Jews have undergone. And so if you like go to the Wikipedia page and look up Tisha B'Av, it will tell you that on Tisha B'Av, we also mark the expulsion of Jews from England and France and Spain. And the, the date when Heinrich Himmler approved the final solution and um, the liquidation of the Warsaw Ghetto. And these events happened in history. They may not have happened exactly on Tisha B'Av, but they happened around Tisha B'Av. And the idea is this, on this holiday, we just hold it all and we cry about it all. Um, there, there remains a debate in Orthodox circles about whether there should even be a separate Holocaust Remembrance Day when we have Tisha B'Av. Like we actually have a placeholder on the calendar for trauma and grief. Let's use it. Let's use it for real trauma and grief. Um, what's interesting, in addition to all of these actual events, is that the holidays also come to take on a kind of mythic and ancient, even Torah, resonance. So, for example, last week, we also read about the spies entering the land of Israel. The, the spies that Moses sent out to like, go scout out the land, come back with a report, tell us how it is, you know, is the fruit big or small? What are the people there like, you know? So we, so we know where we're going as we enter the promised land and the spies come back and they come back full of fear and doubt and insecurity. And they infect everybody with fear and doubt and insecurity. And it is because of that, that they are not, they, that they don't go into the promised land, that they die in the wilderness, almost all of them because they couldn't muster the vision to see beyond their trauma. And this is a spiritual, this is like a, a spiritual and psychological and mythic sort of internal way of experiencing this holiday. But like that event gets mapped onto this holiday as well. This is how the Jewish calendar works, right? Kind of how the whole religion works relative to our history. We make mythic meaning some events actually historically took place and we know it, some might or might not have, and it almost doesn't matter because it's not about how they actually happened, it's about how history happens, happens. There are pharaohs, there are tyrants, seas split. There are heroes, there are people who are complicit. There are people who don't go on the journey and there are people who dive into the water. This isn't necessarily how it happened. It's how history happens. And so the rabbis who created a new Judaism 2,000 years ago on the, you know, sort of on the smoking rubble of Jerusalem's destruction, they invite us to celebrate these holidays, not just as a perpetuation of historical memory and trauma for that matter, but as an invitation to learn. What do we have to learn here? What might we be challenged by? How can we see ourselves in our world differently because of history and not be victims of history, but actually be actors in the future such that we might create a different history than the one we are remembering for ourselves and for other people. So now, if you have been at Mishkan 
for any amount of time, longer than a year, you know that it is around Tisha B'Av next month when I break out this book. This is real and you are completely unprepared by Rabbi Alan Liu Zichorno Livracha. May his memory be a blessing. And you also should know that the, what I'm describing is his Torah. You know, these are, these are his ideas. And so what he says here is the historical events reported to us by our tradition are not about history. They're about the only thing that we have any control over, which is not actually history. It's ourselves. Our responsibility, our complicity, our participation, our behavior, that's it. In his words, neither the rabbis who designed our tradition nor Moses cared a fig about history. I've never heard that phrase before, but that's what he says. Cared a fig about history. He says they weren't historians. They were spiritual leaders. And spiritually speaking, the only question worth asking about any conflict, any recurring catastrophe is what is my responsibility for it? How am I complicit in it? How can I prevent it from happening again? So when we arrive at the story of the breaching of the walls of Jerusalem, as we will in two weeks with the 17th of Tammuz, we don't ask, how did they let this happen to them? Even if there is an, in, an external cause, says Rabbi Lou, we ask, how am I plugging in to this recurring theme? How am I showing up for that? What inside of me needs to be engaged in conflict? And this is where our spiritual practices create not just a moment to remember history, but actually allow us allow it to transform us if we let it. Rabbi Alan Liu was a conservative rabbi in San Francisco when I was a student there. And I actually studied meditation with him and learned many of these ideas from him um, during the period of time when he wrote this book, which was in the early 2000s. The book was published in 2003. He wrote it over the course of the few years prior. And as I was reading over this section about Tisha B'Av, a section jumped out at me that I'm going to just read it to you. I'm just going to read it to you. And I think you'll understand what it has to do with this moment as we move into the next month and a half of profound reflection on what Jewish historical memory is about for us. He writes, I think that the great philosopher George Santayana got it exactly wrong. I think that it is precisely those who insist on remembering history who are doomed to repeat it. For a subject with so little substance, for something that is really little more than a set of intellectual interpretations, history can become a formidable trap, a sticky snare from which we may find it impossible to extricate ourselves. I find it impossible to read the texts of Tisha B'Av with their great themes of exile and return and their endless sense of longing for the land of Israel without thinking about the current political tragedy in the Middle East. I write this at a very dark moment in the long and bleak history of the conflict. He wrote this 20 years ago. Who knows what will be happening when you read this, he says. But I bet it's a safe bet that whenever you do, one thing is unlikely to have changed. There will be a tremendous compulsion for historical vindication from both Israelis and Palestinians. Very often, I think that it is precisely the impossible yearning for historical justification that makes resolution of this conflict also seem so impossible. The Jews, he writes, want vindication for the Holocaust and for 2,000 years of European 
persecution and ostracism that preceded it. The Jews want the same Europeans who now give them moral lectures to acknowledge that this entire situation would never have come about if not for 2000 years of European bigotry, barbarism and xenophobia. They want the world to acknowledge that they were attacked first in 48 and 67 and 73 and in all of the intifadas. They want acknowledgement that they only took the lands from which they were attacked during these conflicts and offered to return them on one condition, the acknowledgement of their right to exist. Anwar Sadat met this condition and the Sinai Peninsula with its rich oil fields and bur burgeoning settlement towns was returned. They want acknowledgement that there are many in the Palestinian camp who truly wish to destroy them, who have used the language of peace as a ploy to bide time until they have the capacity to liquidate Israel and the Jews once and for all. They want acknowledgement that they have suffered immensely from terrorism and that a people who lost 6 million innocents scarcely 70 years ago should not have had to endure the murder of its innocent men, women, and children so soon. And they want acknowledgement that in spite of all of this, they stood at Camp David prepared to offer the Palestinians everything they claimed to have wanted, full statehood, a capital in East Jerusalem, and the response of Palestinians was the second intifada, a murderous campaign of terror and suicide bombings. And Palestinians, they would like the world to acknowledge that they lived in the land now called Israel for centuries. There, they planted olive groves and shepherded flocks and raised their families for hundreds of years. They would like the world to acknowledge that when they look up from their blue roofed villages, their trees and their flowers, their fields and their flocks, they see horrific, they see the horrific uninvited monolith of Western culture. Immense apartment complexes, shopping centers and industrial plants on the once rocky hills where the voice of God could be heard and where Muhammad ascended to heaven. They would like the world to acknowledge that it was essentially a European problem that, plopped into their, that was plopped into their laps at the end of the last great war, not one of their own making. They would like the world to acknowledge that there has always been a kind of arrogance attached to this problem, that it was as if the United States and England said to them, here are the Jews, get used to them. And they would like the world to acknowledge that it is a great indignity, not to mention a significant hardship to have been an occupied people so long, to have had to submit to strip searches on the way to work and intimidation on the way to the grocery store and the constant humiliation of being subject, a humiliation rendered nearly bottomless as Israel consider, continues to use the considerable intellectual and economic resources to make the desert bloom. They would like the world to acknowledge that there are those in Israel who are determined never to grant them independence, who have used the language of peace as a ploy to fill the West Bank with settlement after settlement until the facts on the ground are such that an independent Palestinian state is an impossibility. They would like the world to acknowledge that there is no such thing as a gentle occupation, that occupation corrodes the humanity of the occupier and makes the occupied vulnerable to brutality. He writes, I think that the need to have these things acknowledged for historical affirmation is so great on both sides that Israelis and Palestinians would rather perish as peoples than give this up. In fact, I think they both feel they would perish as peoples if they did. 
They would rather die than admit their own complicity in the present situation, because to make such an admission would be to acknowledge the suffering of the other and the legitimacy of the other's complaint. And that might mean that they themselves were wrong or evil or bad and give the other an opening to annihilate or enslave them. And then he says, I wonder how many of us are stuck in a similar snare. I wonder how many of us are holding on very hard to some piece of personal history that is preventing us from moving on with our lives and keeping us from those who we love. I wonder how many of us are clinging so tenaciously to a version of the story of our lives and our future in which we appear to be utterly blameless and innocent that we become oblivious to the pain we have inflicted on others, no matter how unconsciously or inevitably or innocently we may have inflicted it. I wonder how many of us are terrified of acknowledging the truth of our lives because we think it will expose us. How many of us stand paralyzed between the sun and the moon, frozen, unable to act in the moment because of our terror of the past and because of the intractability of the present circumstances. Forgiveness, it has been said, means giving up the hope of a better past. Forgiveness, it has been said, means giving up our hopes for a better past, for a different past. This may sound like a joke, but how many of us refuse to give up our version of the past and find it impossible to forgive ourselves or others and therefore impossible to act differently in the present to change the trajectory of events that have befallen us? He goes on to talk about how to use all of this as grist for the mill as we prepare for high holidays. I want to suggest that as we move into the month of Tammuz and into this descent into the dark parts of our unconscious, of our subconscious, of our historical memory, we have the opportunity, we have the opportunity to move past the narratives that we have held so tightly that we repeat year after year after year and, and that actually prevent us from transforming the status quo into a different present and future. And I, I mean that in a personal way, as Rabbi Lou suggests. And I also mean that relative to this conflict that has been on so many of our minds and hearts over the past number of months or years or lifetimes. We have the opportunity to adjust ourselves away from the posture of eternal victim and to play a proactive role in this moment and not to operate like the spies from a place of fear and doubt and insecurity, but from a place of vision. Now, this is not to say that anti-Semitism is not very real and needs to be named, needs to be rooted out, needs to be prevented in every context, just like every other targeting of a minority in this country and around the world. That is not to say, not to say any of that. It is to say we have choices about the instincts that drive us. Our choices, our words, our tzedakah, our philanthropy, our education, our Facebook posts, we, we have a choice about what to allow us to bring forth in our speech and our, and our offerings to the world. Will we be driven by the need for justification and vindication and validation of our story? Will we allow ourselves to operate from a place of 
vision for what might be possible that has never been possible before from a place of trust where trust might not have existed before? What if we permitted ourselves not to be limited by the stories that we have told again and again, but opened ourselves to the possibility of hearing new stories from people who don't share our story and begin to tell new stories that haven't been told yet, especially stories that we may have a hard time hearing the first time or the second time, but actually over time, these become our stories too. And we get used to being able to tell them and learn from them as well. We have a three month journey toward the high holidays. It's happening um, and it begins today, like really today in three months, it will be Rosh Hashanah, which I know seems like a long time away, but it's gonna go by like that. It is gonna go by like that. I pray all of us that we make the most of this journey. It is an internal journey, but it has powerful, powerful external possibilities. I pray for us, for ourselves. I pray for our people. I pray for Israelis and Palestinians. I pray for the sake of everyone who needs to hear new stories and tell new stories and have their stories be heard to begin envisioning how we might recreate the world in this year to come. You've been listening to Shabbat Replay on Contact High, a podcast from Mishkan, Chicago. If you enjoyed this sermon and want to join us live, tune in to Shabbat services through Facebook most Fridays of the month and through Zoom two Saturday mornings a month. Our schedule of services and programs can be found at mishkanchicago.org events, where there's also a link to donate and support our work. And you can visit us on Facebook or Instagram at Mishkan Chicago. Until then, please feel free to subscribe and leave us a review. As always, we want to hear from you. This episode has been brought to you by me, Zach Weinberg, our editor and producer, Hannah Rehack, our rabbinical team, Rabbis Lizzie Heideman and Dina Cowens, and our director of communications, Ashley Donahue. On behalf of Teen Mishkan... Thanks for tuning in.